welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. All right, good morning, church. Bom dia. Nice. Bom dia, which means good morning in Portuguese. We'll be reading the Bible in Portuguese today. And also, we like to say, tudo bem. Yes, tudo bem, which means how are you? And you can also answer saying tudo bem. So, can you turn to someone next to you and say tudo bem? Tudo bem? Yeah. Tudo bem. Nice. Awesome. All right. So, today we're going to be reading through Hebrews 4, 4, 14 to 16. Uh, would you please stand for the reading of the Word of God? Por favor, se levante para a leitura da Bíblia. Hebreus 4, 14, 16. Hebreus 4, 14, 16. Says, Visto que temos um grande sumo sacerdote, Jesus, Filho de Deus, que penetrou nos céus, Retenhamos firmemente a nossa confissão, porque não temos um sumo sacerdote que não possa combadecer-te das nossas fraquezas, porém que, como nós, em tudo foi tentado, mas sem pecado. 16. Chegamos, pois, com confiança ao trono da graça, para que possamos alcançar misericórdia e achar graça, a fim de sermos ajudados em tempo oportuno. Essa é a palavra de Deus. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here this morning. Uh, Lord, in even a warm place. Pray for those who are cold, for those who don't have a warm place. We ask, Lord, that you would help us be your hands and your feet in those situations. Pray for those who are sick and are hurting. And Lord, we pray that you would provide the comfort and the healing that's needed there. And lastly, we just ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you have to tell us this morning. Lord, may your words hit soft hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning. It's nice to see you guys. I didn't expect anybody to be here this morning, so this is kind of cool. Uh, my name's Kevin. I am the lead pastor of Church at the Well. If you're new here, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. I'll also be preaching in English, so you may be excited to hear that. Um, thanks, Greg, for doing that. Um, we, we like to read the Word in different languages occasionally just to remind us that we are part of a larger body that meets around the world on this day to praise Jesus, and we're not alone. Um, so if you're new, welcome. We have been preaching through the book of Hebrews. We find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, which if you have ever gone to church, you've probably heard preached. It is an extremely popular passage. It's something that uh, a lot of pastors enjoy preaching through. And so hopefully I'll give you some kind of insight that will be meaningful and the Holy Spirit will move. Um, remember, the book of Hebrews is designed to remind us that Jesus is supreme in all things. He's superior, he has supremacy, and he is supposed to be the first of everything in our life. And oftentimes what we find is that's not true. Even Christ followers who have been following Jesus a long time, we have this, this sin nature, we have this thing that goes on in our lives where we desire to worship Jesus in everything, but we often withhold him from certain areas of our life. It's how we are. 
And so the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to try to find those spaces where the gospel isn't present in our lives and bring it to those points. And so oftentimes we're having to ask ourselves, where are those spaces? And if you remember, we, we preached the book of James not too long ago, and I said the book of James was this mirror that kind of gets put up in front of us, and it's, it's pointing out those things, and then Hebrews was a natural advancement of that to say, okay, when you have found those spaces, these are the reasons why Jesus needs to come into those spaces. But the beautiful thing about this passage, and I will read it in English so that those of you who don't speak Portuguese can follow. Um, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 if you haven't, and I'll start at verse 14. Where this starts really speaks into everything that I've just said. It begins this way, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. It starts with this idea of Jesus being high priest. As Protestants or as evangelicals, this idea of priest is a little bit foreign to us, though if you read the Old Testament, you're going to get a lot of introduction to it. The priest was intended to be the representative for people to God. So in the Old Testament, we have this crazy sacrificial system that's happening, and we've explained that several times. The priests would oversee the temple or the synagogue. They would uh, perform the sacrifices on behalf of the people. They would provide counsel, similar things to what a pastor does today. They would point people, the, the idea was to point people to God. Now, in some religions and some belief systems that even are around Boston, they have priests and that kind of holds to the same idea that you're coming to an individual who you go to and then they kind of represent you to Jesus. And what Scripture tells us is that Jesus is now our high priest. And that changes everything. It changes everything. It changes the nature of the way that a pastor functions. It changes the nature of the way that you see Christ. It changes the way that you view your belief system and religion because it means that as he being your high priest, you have access to him directly whenever you choose. Meaning you don't come through me. You don't come through another person. Your relationship with Christ is personal. He's the high priest. I, from a humanistic standpoint, because I believe Jesus has a ton of offices, we always, you know, for, especially in Reformed theology, we're constantly saying Jesus holds three offices, uh, prophet, priest, and king, right? We, we say this, you probably have heard this before, and I'm sure there's more than that, but our human minds can't comprehend it all. But as priests, we realize that Jesus is the one that has come to allow us access to the Father, to the Creator. Now, one of the things that's fascinating about this is I have talked with so many people and they say, well, you know, why do I even need a priest? Why, why is that? Well, the reason that you need a priest is because we're dirty, rotten sinners living in a sin-cursed world, which you hear me say every single week. And we are separated from our Creator. Something has to transpire for us to be able to have access to our Creator. We have to go through something because we're not capable of coming back to God on our own. So the Old Testament was designed to show us this major separation between God and mankind and to provide a system that would allow us to see that there's nothing that we can do, no matter how hard we work, 
to achieve this access to our Creator. It has to go through something. In fact, Scripture says the wages of sin is death. Something has to die. As a a sin-cursed human being, in, in essence, I have a choice. I can choose to pay that death penalty myself, meaning I owe God a death penalty that doesn't really appeal to me. Or something can die for me. But either way, something has to happen. Somebody has to do something in order for me to have access to my Creator. That's a problem. I want access to my Creator. If I'm a created being and I don't have access to my Creator, then how do I know what I'm even supposed to do? If God created all things which He did and God created me and He created you, then it would make sense that if we're looking for our purpose, which we all are, and we're looking for what life is truly about and how we're to live, then we need access to the Creator. Otherwise, we find ourselves guessing. And we all know what happens when we guess. It it gets ugly fast. And so Jesus steps in and He says, I'll be that sacrifice. I'll take it. And in doing so, which we'll get to here in a minute, He becomes the new advocate for us. It says in Scripture that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and He's advocating for those who put their faith and trust in Him. He becomes the high priest. Which means you have access to the Father through Jesus anytime that you want it. You have direct access to Jesus. You don't don't have to go through a specific church. You don't have to go through a specific person outside of Christ. It's there anytime you need it, whenever you want it. Openly. It's, it's a phenomenal thing to think about. So we have this high priest, and it says as we continue to go that because he's high priest and he's the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. Our confession, the easiest way to explain our confession is really what you've placed your faith in. You believe in something. If maybe you're new to church world, maybe it's the first time you walked into church in a long time and you're like, what is this Jesus thing about? Or maybe somebody invited you and said, I'll take you to lunch afterwards, which is a great reason to come. Make them pay. Um, A lot of us tend to be on a search just trying to figure out what is life about and how does this work and what is it that I truly believe? But everybody puts their faith in something. Faith just means that you're trusting in something to produce something else. So for example, we put faith in money oftentimes where we'll say, man, I I need to pay my bills, I need to do this thing, so I work, and then that money that's produced, I have faith that it's going to help me get to where I want to be. Sometimes we put faith in people. And I tell you almost every week, don't ever put your faith in me, right? Because at some point, even as a church leader, I will disappoint you, I will upset you, something will happen. You know this, when we put our faith in people, they tend to disappoint us. You disappoint me, I disappoint you. Everyone disappoints each other. We'll put our faith in a job, we'll put our faith in a relationship, we'll put our faith in a circumstance. And oftentimes it just seems to I mean, I talk to people a lot where they just say, man, I feel like I've tried everything and nothing seems to work. It's just a constant failure when I look at it. I'm trusting this, I'm trusting this, and it just crumbles. 
What the scriptures remind us is that the only thing that truly exists that we can trust 100% of the time is Jesus. When our faith is in him, then he never disappoints. One of the reasons that he never disappoints is because he never changes. As much as me, we, we want him to at times, like I argue with the Lord all the time, right? I'm like, dude, come on. Like, can you just do this? And as I read scripture, he's like, the reason that it's not going to happen is because I already told you this is who I am. Now, we're not used to that. People change all the time. I, when I do marriage counseling, I tell people a lot, you know, there's, there's expectations when people come into marriage, right? And typically the guy comes in and he's looking at the girl and he's like, she's never going to change. And, he's, and then the girl comes in and she's like, I'm going to change him. And neither one happens. <laughs> right? It, it's, we're used to, like, change. We're used to disappointment. We're, our, our experiences show us that. And so what's interesting about a relationship with Jesus is you almost have to step outside of your humanistic experience to say this is something different. If God is who he says he is, and he is, and he is immutable, we've talked about that, that he is unchanging, and every time he says something, it holds true forever, then he never changes, which allows us to bank on the fact that he's always going to be who he says that he is. His promises will always be accurate. When he says that something is correct, it will always be correct. When he says something is righteous, it will always be righteous. When he says something is sin, it will always be sin. There's no ambiguity in God. We struggle with ambiguity all the time. We live in a gray world where we're constantly going, what's right, what's wrong? And then it seems like circumstances are constantly pushing us to go, man, I really believe this to be true, but in this certain circumstance, I don't know what to do with that belief. Like, where are those lines? Where do I cross them? God doesn't struggle with this. We do, he doesn't. Which makes him worthy of placing our faith into. It also brings us back to the beginning where we know that Jesus is our high priest so when we're in those moments and we don't know what to do we actually have an individual that we can go to that's perfect and always knows what to do my problem is oftentimes I just don't go there and I'm guessing that's something you struggle with as well our confession is important our confession is the gospel now, across the board, doctrine is really important. We talk about doctrine here a lot. Um, if you come here very long, you know where we land and what it looks like, and you can go on a website and look at doctrinal statement. But the reality is what really boils down to the confession is just the simplicity and the complexity all combined into one gospel, the good news of Jesus. That's what's most important. What is the gospel? The gospel is so simple in its nature that a child can understand it. It's so complex that we can study it for the rest of our lives and never fully grasp it. Let me explain. The gospel is that Jesus came and he lived the life that I was supposed to live. Perfect. And then he dies the death that I deserve. And then three days later, 
He conquers sin, Satan, and death by rising from the grave. He now sits at the right hand of the Father and He offers us freedom in Him and salvation in Him by putting our faith and trust in Him alone. That's the Gospel. So, you know, a lot of you that have come here, you know my testimony, I came to Christ at a young age. I've said I don't remember the story. I just remember a red-headed teacher saying the Gospel and explaining it through some story of a tugboat that I don't remember. But I remember that it was so simple she was able to explain it to me. And I remember being in a room of maybe a couple hundred kids at a Christian school. And when they said, who wants to know Jesus? I stood up and nobody else did. And I didn't understand that. Why am I the only one standing? I understood it. I got it. But now as an adult, and I've continued to study the Word and attempt by His grace to apply the Gospel in areas of my life where it's void and... I've grown and I've struggled and there's all kinds of, everybody has their journey. I realize the complexities of it because I'm constantly dealing with, Lord, I have no idea why you would want me. And that makes things complex. It it makes the confession of what we believe difficult because you can believe it wholeheartedly and at the same time go, I don't understand. Like, why, why would you choose to die for me? Why would you choose that? As an immutable being, knowing all things, you see my heart, you know the thoughts in my head, you know my struggles, my weaknesses. Why would you desire relationship with me at all? And that creates complexity. It, it creates difficulties. It, sometimes it's, it's easy to profess sometimes who Jesus is, but often in reality it's hard to actually engage it here because we understand our sin. But it says in this passage that because Jesus is our high priest and the Son of God, that we're supposed to hold fast to our confession. So I'm going to give you kind of a a secret. Lean in a little bit. What I've learned in my almost 49 years of life, I guess at this point, is that in order to hold fast to the confession, I have to make sure that it isn't about me. I have to take my eyes off my own heart And I have to believe the truth of what Scripture says above my own sin nature. In those moments where it feels difficult, bless you, in those moments where it feels difficult, in those moments where I'm having a pity party or I'm really, I guess, placing in the Gospel in a category in my life where I'm struggling to believe that Jesus would even desire me at all. I have to lean into the truth of the Gospel. Because if I lean into my attempted own understanding, it's not going to work and it's not going to hold fast. So what is that confession? It is that Jesus loves you. That He's willing to take you exactly as you are. And He promises not to leave you that way. 
That's unreal to think about. There's no promise like that anywhere else. He'll take you exactly as you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you're going to do tomorrow. He loves you. And that is never going to change. He offers you the ability to see through his eyes, to understand a true love, to to realize that there's a love that is beyond viewing you just like you are, but viewing who you are through him. It's that's the confession that we hold on to. In my weakest moments, there's a prayer that I pray, and Lord, I, I, I struggle looking in the mirror, so would you let me see me through your eyes? And in those moments, you're holding fast to the confession. Why? Because I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. Sin is deceptive, and if sin is deceptive, how do you know you're being deceived? And so I have to see myself through what I know to be true and what I know to never change so that I understand accurately. And the only way to do that is not to compare myself to others and not to compare myself to what I've done in the past, but to compare myself to Christ himself. And say, this is the confession. The confession is you are exactly who you say you are. You are the Son of God. You are the Gospel. You are the one that loves me beyond anything I can imagine. You are the one that offers salvation. You are the one that has the power and grace to give me the peace that I'm seeking when I can't seem to find it. That's the confession. One of the things I think we miss in this is the privilege as a Christ follower to get to hold fast to the confession. Do you realize that there's no circumstance in this planet, there's no sin that you can commit that can eliminate the confession of who Jesus is? He will always be the Son of God. He will always be the final sacrifice. He will always be the Savior of the world. And there's nothing we can do to eliminate that confession. So the scriptures remind us we just have to believe it. In those moments when we're struggling with everything, we can always look at Jesus because he doesn't change. So we hold fast to the confession. So if I were to end the sermon here, which I won't, and I were to say, okay, like what's the takeaway in this? this little first section, I would tell you, I would first question, what is it that you believe? Like, what are you holding on to? If you had to define what your confession of faith looks like, you have one. I don't know what that is, but you do. How's it going? If it's not grounded in Christ and it's grounded in something else or this combination of the two, what you're going to find is that your confession is actually false. Because it's grounded in things that are constantly going to change. Or it's grounded in circumstances which are always going to change. 
So you need to know what that is. Those are the blind spots. Those as a Christ follower when we realize that our confession seems to be revolving around something that isn't biblical, that isn't actually who Jesus is, then we go, okay, that's an area where the Gospel really needs to to come into play in my life. Because I have to trust that I'm believing a lie if it's not coming from Jesus. Now, we have an enemy. We talked about this last week, and it can be coming from something, but Jesus doesn't lie. And Jesus doesn't change. So we begin. Hold fast to this confession. What is it? What do you believe? You need to know. And I will tell you right now, if you're falling into a camp of saying, well, I don't know that you can really know what to believe, then you have a lot of searching to do. And I would double-dog dare you to investigate Jesus. All right, let's keep going. Let me read that again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We're talking about what what we have our faith placed in. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Wow. I've been meditating on that passage for a while this week and just really trying to process the understanding that Jesus understands. There's a difference between Jesus understanding and Jesus accepting. He understands my struggle. He understands the the sin nature that exists in me. He understands the temptation. He understands the, the pull and the draw to want to do it my way. He understands the temptation of the shortcut. I mean, if you look at Jesus' temptations in Matthew, we, you've got the enemy literally coming to Jesus, which none of us have probably ever had. Right? You'd have to be pretty arrogant to believe that one being actually, that you're like a big enough threat that Satan came and tempted you. Right? That's, that's pretty arrogant. I mean, we only see this a few times in Scripture, and Jesus is one of them where the enemy actually shows up and he begins to tempt Jesus. And he tempts him in many ways. What he's really tempting with, you look at the big picture, is he's saying, do you really have to die? Like, you know who you are. You can have all of this without doing that. You don't need to go through the pain and the suffering. Why would you choose to die for such horrible people? You can still be king. Jesus gets it. I mean, he's gone through greater temptations than we're ever going to go through. But he gets it. He understands. This is what makes the gospel so personal. And I say, okay, we're holding fast to the confession of the gospel that's for all. Then we get to this component where we realize that Jesus actually doesn't just die for those who believe. He actually died for you specifically. Meaning he knows in the moment that you're being tempted, what you're going through, and he also provides you the ability to escape it. Now, here's the thing with this. We try to be as real as I possibly can. 
I think sometimes we have a hard time relating to this. Because I think we, we get to a place sometimes where we feel like nobody really understands what I'm going through. Like nobody gets the pain. Nobody gets the sacrifice. Nobody gets the struggle. I mean, as a pastor and church planter, if you've ever tempted to plant a church, you go through things that you can't possibly imagine. And it's tempting to sit back and go, nobody gets it. It's so hard. It is. As living as a Christ follower in a city like Boston, that's dark. I mean, the city of Boston doesn't just attempt to dissuade you from following Christ. It will actually encourage you to do things antithetical to Jesus. It'll literally say, look, you're calling that a sin, but we'll, we'll take it to whole other levels for you. And we'll celebrate the fact that you're engaging in it. We'll wrap an entire lifestyle around it for you if you like. We can, we can create a lifestyle for you that all you have to do is seek after whatever that pleasures you the most. And then we can find people that will encourage you to keep pressing and pressing and pressing into it. And I think often it's easy to give in to that because we think nobody really gets it. There's this, there's this thing inside of us that we don't talk about. We talk about a sin nature. We talk about this draw to sin, sin-cursed bodies. But what we don't talk a lot about is how that impacts us personally when we're blowing it and then we develop internally, even if it doesn't come out, a martyr complex. Right? Nobody has it as hard as me. Nobody struggles as much. Or we can develop so much pride. Do you ever, you ever had this one? And you're never going to say it out loud, so I'll say it for you, but... Jesus, did you see what I just did? Like, you're so lucky to have me on your team. You know, we say those things internally. Like, Jesus, I deserve a cookie, right? Or Jesus, I just did this. Why are you doing this? In Scripture, it's fascinating because if you study it from this perspective, it'll, if you've never done it, it'll be interesting for you, but you're going to find that if you study Scripture from the perspective of circumstance and trial and tribulation, you're going to find that oftentimes the highest highs in ministry are followed by the lowest lows possible. And I don't think that's just in ministry. That's life in general, right? Like, there's this major celebration. I mean, if I don't for, for you athletes, you know, it's that moment that you win the big game, whatever that is defined in your head. And then afterwards, you have that like almost depression. We celebrate, and now it's like, well, what's next? Professional athletes experience this a lot. They win the big game, they win the World Series, they win the Super Bowl, they win Wimbledon, whatever it is, and they're like, that's it? 
Like I expected something to change or click or I expected to feel like my life was all of a sudden fulfilled. I felt like this was the purpose I was seeking and I got it and all of a sudden it feels more empty than it did before. See, we all experience that. And then we can buy into this lie that nobody gets it. My spouse doesn't get it. My friends don't get it. My pastor doesn't get it. My church doesn't get it. So I'm going to help you out here. They don't. But Jesus does. Nobody has to walk your shoes but you. Everybody walks a different path. Everybody experiences different things. Everybody has different temptations everybody gives into things that others don't we we have this life that we live that looks different than the life of the person next to us we we are a culmination of our experiences and what has been done to us and what we've done to others and we take all of that trash and all of that garbage and ultimately it defines how we process things why is this verse so important because the gospel is intended to cut through all of that. It says, listen, you've bought into a bunch of lies because of your experiences and choices, but that's not really who you are. You're now seeking things that you shouldn't be seeking, but that's not really who you are. Who are you? You're a son or daughter of the king. In Christ you you have a hope and a future in Christ you have a purpose you have the ability to live a life that's filled with joy in Christ and Jesus gets it you have a high priest who understands you have a Savior when it, you know I try to simplify the gospel as saying Jesus lived the life that you were supposed to live. Do you really get that? He lived the life that you were supposed to live. Scripture calls him the second Adam. He lived the life that Adam was supposed to live. And that blows my mind because I know what Adam had. You do too. You can read it. He walked with God. He lived in perfection what we desire to get to. He's the only living being that I'm aware of, Adam and Eve, that ever experienced true shalom on this planet. And yet, he still chose something else. All that tells me is it doesn't have anything to do with circumstances. If you're buying into the lie that if I just had this, you're already failing. In the gospel, you have everything that you already need. You have a Savior who understands. And when I say He'll take you as you are, but He won't leave you that way, you have a Savior who understands, but you also have a Savior who loves you enough to not allow you to live a way antithetical to Him and what you've been created for. That's the beauty of the gift of the Holy Spirit. To provide us the grace and the strength 
and the power that we need to not buy into the lie that we create for ourselves. He understands. Once again, I, until you grasp that as a Christ follower, you're going to have a really hard time not buying into the constant lie that's going to be placed before you. Because I, let me, let me give you this as an example. When you have a relationship with someone, it could just be a friend, it, it doesn't matter, and you're close to them, and then you come to the conclusion in your head that they do not understand you, your relationship begins to deteriorate. It happens every time. So, you know, relationships end up getting fixed through communication, right? That's just how it works. And then forgiveness and so on and so forth. We know all of that. Everybody's experienced broken relationships and repaired relationships and whatever it is. But we get this. So when you, but when you get to the place where you're going, man, the people that I am closest to or this person or whoever it is, they just don't understand me. I remember thinking this as a kid. Okay, if, you, if you're having trouble coming up with an analogy, think of it when you were a kid. Man, my parents are out of touch. They just don't understand me. It begins to break the relationship. Because when you fall into a space where you go, this person doesn't understand me, then things begin to deteriorate. There's no longer a trust. You no longer believe that that person has your good in mind. And even if I attempted to explain it to them, I'm, are they even going to care? Right? It's the opposite with Jesus. He understands. He gets it. And so that's where things get interesting. When people say, well, I have a broken relationship with Jesus, I'm like, it's not because Jesus moved. It's because you moved. Because Jesus understands. So you can't say Jesus doesn't understand. He does. He's been through it. He gets it. In fact, he paid the punishment for it. He suffered for it. He has wounds for it. He understands it to the point where he actually felt the punishment of what we deserve as a result of it. So to say he doesn't understand, I mean, it, don't you find it interesting that as when we, you think about the story of the resurrection and Jesus comes in and you have this guy we call Doubting Thomas. I love that name, but I think it, it, it's, it's kind of cruel in some ways, right? Because we all would have wanted to see it. But he's like, let me see Jesus' touch. And we don't, have any, we don't have any proof that Thomas actually did that. It doesn't say like he put his finger in there, right? Which I would do, because I would want to know, right? I'm weird. I touch everything, right? My mom's like, don't ever work on a submarine. You know why? There's too many buttons. And I'd be like, what does that one do? Let's find out. <laughs> Doubting Thomas, it, there's a reason why Jesus came and said, look, here it is. Like, this is the proof of me understanding. The wounds in my hands and my feet and on my back and on my head are proof that I understand. I understand more than you do because you've been having to suffer the penalty of God's wrath for the way that we live. So to say Jesus doesn't understand is 
heresy because he understands more than we understand. He understands us more than we understand ourselves. You have a high priest, a king, a savior that understands. Do you realize what a gift that is? It's always, it's always the reason, well, one of the reasons why I'm always so confused when an individual who loves Jesus is like, Jesus doesn't understand, and I'm like, wow. You don't get the gospel. Your arrogance has come so far that you don't even see the gift that you've been given and always having somebody that understands and encourages differently, Right? Last verse, let us then, if I just stop there, let us then, it's, this would be like the, like the therefore, right? It's, if we were to study the original language, you might as well put therefore there. It's very similar in its structure and words, and I tell you, when we see therefore, like circle those in your Bible, underline them, because this is the, this is the conclusion of what has come before. So you have to take what's come before and grounding that, this is the solution. So you can't have the therefore without the declaration of what was coming before. So since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confidence for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, therefore, this is the, because that is true. So, let me break this down again. Because you believe in the confession of the gospel, which means if you don't, the therefore isn't for you. Because you believe in the confession of the gospel, because you understand that Jesus understands, because he took your place, because you know that he sympathizes with you, because he knows your pain and your struggle, Therefore, believing that, believing all of that, therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is, this, this is the culmination. So if we were to work backwards, then you would say, I have need and I'm hurting and I'm struggling. So what do I do? And I would say, okay, we're at the end. We gotta go back to the beginning, right? We work backwards, so you have this need, meaning the answer is I wanna be able to come to the creator and, and, and express my needs to him confidently knowing that he cares. Because it doesn't do me any good to pray and just feel like my prayers are just going out into the universe or hitting the ceiling. I need to know 
That if I'm going to pray, that if I'm going to, to if, I, if I need help, that the Creator actually cares about me, that my prayers will be heard. I need that confidence. And according to this passage of Scripture, we actually, as Christ followers, have the ability to declare that in confidence, which is a beyond a privilege that anybody can understand. Because here's the thing. We know how distracting things are. Let me give you a quick example, right? You're standing in front of somebody today and they're talking to you and you're looking over there. And you're like, dang, how did he know that happened today? Because it happens all the time. We're, we're constantly distracted. We're constantly like, like I, Christy can say something to me. And she's like, I told you that. And I've gotten to the point where I'm going, you know what? I'm not going to say you didn't tell me that. I'm just going to flat out say, I didn't hear it or I wasn't listening. Because the odds are, you probably said it. Right? I just was doing something else. Now, the tables also turn. Because she'll say, I didn't hear that. Or I didn't. And she's got to get to the point where she's going, well, you probably said it. Now, she's usually 90% correct. Right? So maybe I didn't say it. There's, there's these things. But... You understand what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) the confidence to know that when we're addressing the creator of the world through our high priest Jesus, because of our confession and our faith, to know that he hears it without being distracted. If nothing will put you on your knees in humility, that should. That we can approach the throne. If you, if you want to get your mind blown, read the beginning of Isaiah, right? There's this moment where Isaiah is transported to the throne room of God. And every time I hear the throne room of God, that's where my brain goes. And every time I read that passage, it freaks me out. Because what's going on in the throne room of God is crazy. There's things flying around. There's things I don't understand. There's something about a train that fills the temple. I'm like, what is happening here? There's incense burning. There's things happening. I'm like, I could not handle this. But can you imagine what the story would have looked like if Isaiah had known Jesus and is transported to the throne room of God and bought into the idea because of Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father that he could walk up there in confidence? changes everything. We'll still be on our face, but we'll be confidently on our face. (laughs) The idea that your prayers actually matter in Christ, that he actually hears it. Do you pray in confidence? Now, praying in confidence doesn't mean that we get everything that we pray for. Praying in confidence means that we're willing to subject ourselves to the will of the Father by the grace of Jesus. There's a passage of scripture in Habakkuk that I preach often or teach often when I'm talking to leaders and it begins, it's Habakkuk chapter two, you can go there someday, and it begins with Habakkuk saying that he raises himself up in the tower. 
And this is what I believe is happening. It's, uh, maybe he's in a tower, I don't know. But there's a moment, if you, I mean, everybody in here is a leader at some point. You lead somebody. And there's moments in your life where you have to raise yourself up above all of it, take that 30,000 foot view, and Habakkuk is looking at the Lord and he's looking at everything that the Lord has put him over. Every once in a while, I'll make a list of this. My family, church, friends, whatever it is that I'm leading. Because sometimes I'm not leading something more, so it removes from the list. And, and then it says that Habakkuk comes to the Lord as he's looking at all of this with his complaints. Because we all have them. But then this was what's interesting about it. Habakkuk comes in confidence with, these are my complaints. But then he turns it, and in that passage it says I'm, that he's curious how he's going to respond when the Lord responds. He doesn't come in this confidence of going, you're going to do everything that I've asked you to do. Because sometimes we offer a complaint to the Lord, and the Lord's like, quit complaining. Like, to complain to the Lord with some of the, it's like, Lord, why am I going through this? You're going through that because you chose to go through it. There's consequences for choices that we make. So sometimes you go through things, the, the choices that you follow. So we get this moment where the confidence of what we pray to God is a confidence and a hope by the grace of God that when he responds to us, that we're going to have a response that would be glorifying to Jesus. Because sometimes his response is, nope. Lord, I want to be the richest person in the world. Nope. Not going to happen. You're already rich in Christ. Right? It's interesting, when Jesus was walking the earth during his earthly ministry and he approached people to follow him, and some did and some didn't, most didn't, it always seems like the conversation he has with them looks different. He, I mean, he's Jesus. He sees into their heart, right? So if I think of the rich young ruler, he goes to the rich young ruler, he's like, sell everything, and the guy's like, nope, I like my possessions. You know what he was being invited into? He didn't. And then other times he would come in and he wouldn't say, sell everything, leave father and mother. Why? Because your family's your idol. It looked different for everyone. Why? Because we all struggle with different things. So we don't know how the Lord necessarily is going to respond to everything that we suggest. Now what I will say is if you pray God's will, you'll always get a yes. Example, it's a silly prayer to ask the Lord if you should evangelize to your neighbor. Right? Because he's already told you to do it. Now what you can pray to the Lord is, Lord, would you give me the opportunity, the grace, the courage, the boldness, the words to say the right thing in the right moment to my neighbor? And now you're praying what God has already promised to give you, and that answer is always going to be yes. Every single time. It's like, I've used this example before a long time ago, but it's like if, you know, I have a, I mean, we live in a city, I don't lawns, but, you know, raised in California, we had front yards, and I always had to mow the lawn. And can you imagine my dad, like me walking into my dad and going, Dad, can I mow the lawn today? 
Like, I would love nothing more to mow the lawn. He's going to be like, uh, yeah, go. No, you can't mow the lawn. I'm going to do it myself, right? When you're asking your father for things that he wants to give you already, the answer is always yes. Lord, help me see Jesus more. Yes. The confidence that we have in approaching the Father is that he always hears. The confidence that we have is that if we'll take whatever he answers us and filter that through the gospel as well, then it will always be for our good. Isn't that remarkable? We're the only beings that exist on this planet that will ask for things from our creator that will actually destroy us. And he knows it. And he's good enough to say no. Gospel changes everything. It's just we don't put it in the perspective that we need to. I'll read this one more time and we'll be done. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we should all say, Amen. So what do we do with all this? This is the thing, you know, it's that so what moment. Well, first, all that sounds pretty good. It's pretty cool to think that there's somebody out there that understands you, that loves you, that died for you, that cares for you. It's pretty cool that you have the ability in Christ to approach the throne of grace in time of need, and you know that you'll be heard. That's cool to think about. So first I would say this, if you're here today and you don't know who Jesus is, then we have to work backwards. You don't have a confession of faith in Christ. You don't have a savior who understands you personally and you cannot approach God in confidence. Your only option is to eventually approach God, separate him from him forever on your knees, declaring who he is regardless to your own detriment. And that's a scary thought. So what's the answer? The answer is you need to give your heart to Jesus. Without that, none of this exists. Remember, it's the therefore. We like the end. But you can't ask for something from somebody you don't know. And your only option to know your creator is through our high priest, Jesus. So step one, you need to know him. What's step one of knowing him? Realizing that you're a dirty, rotten sinner and need a savior because you can't save yourself. That's the beginning. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you've never put your faith and trust in him and him alone, then I would encourage you, you have the ability to do that. So what do you do? Well, we're going to do something religious here in a moment by taking communion. So the first thing I would tell you is please don't take communion. I don't want anybody leaving here with saying, oh, I did something religious and leaving here with a false hope. A better response would be, you can come find me if you like. We can chat. 
You can turn to the person next to you and go, do you know Jesus? And if they say yes, say, can we chat? Doesn't have to be me. Go get some coffee. Ask questions. Or maybe you just need to hit your knees because the Holy Spirit's already doing a work in your heart and you just need to have the boldness and courage to say, Jesus is everything. But that's step one. It says if you'll seek Him, you'll find Him. For those of you who are Christ followers, there's a whole lot of things we can work through with this one. And I would suggest from a practical standpoint that you work backwards. Are you able to approach the throne of grace in times of need with confidence? If you are, and you're willing to hear from the Lord what His will is, then you can take communion today praising God that He gives you the ability to do that through Christ. But if you can't, then we start working backwards. Where's the issue? Is the issue in your confidence in Christ? Then maybe we need to revisit that. Is your issue that you don't really believe that Jesus understands? You're the exception? Then we need to fix that. And I don't know what that's going to look like for every single person here, but you can work backwards from the therefore and say, where is the problem? Remember, the goal ultimately is to be reminded that Jesus is supreme and superior and sufficient to every single thing in our life. And when we don't apply the gospel to certain areas of our life, we're going to struggle. So where does it need to be applied? Now here's the beautiful thing for everyone in the room. You're never stuck. Ever. There's a promise in Scripture that says that every single day is a new day in Christ. So no matter where you're at or what you've done, what your past is, what you've chosen to believe, you have the ability in Christ for tomorrow to be a new day. Actually, you have ability for right now to be new. You're never stuck. So we're going to take communion. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing a couple of songs. This time's for you. Uh, We need to be reminded that Communion is only for those who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Otherwise, it's not going to be very meaningful for you, and it's going to do nothing. It's a reminder that Jesus is who he says he is, and it reminds us of what he paid for us to actually be able to believe that and approach the throne of grace with confidence. Sometimes we need to come to the table in pure celebration. Sometimes we need to come to it in tears. We always need to come to it humbly. And so this is your time. The band's going to sing a couple of songs. There's elements on both sides here. You can come up and partake whenever you see fit. Scripture says that we're to make sure that we have dealt with some things so that we're partaking in a worthy manner. If there's someone in here that you're holding something against, maybe you need to fix that before. I don't know. But this is you. This is your opportunity to respond. So whatever the Holy Spirit's doing in your heart, I would encourage you with everything in me by the grace of God that you don't leave here the same as you walked in. When we come in contact with God's word, it's supposed to change us something. So what needs to change? Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the person of Jesus. Lord, I specifically want to pray for any person in this room right now who has never put their faith and trust in Christ. Lord, I ask that you would regenerate their heart. You would remove the heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh. Give them the courage and the boldness to really see Jesus for who he is. Lord, give them boldness to ask questions or just hit their knees and profess you as Lord. Lord, I pray for the Christ followers who are in this room that are hurting. Lord, we live in sin-cursed bodies in a sin-cursed world and it's hard. It's so hard. It's so hard that we need a Savior. So Lord, I ask that each one of those circumstances that we're going through, whatever it looks like, whatever it is, that you would allow us to see it through the eyes of the gospel and that you'd relieve us from the pain and the anxiety of believing that we're on our own in anything, knowing that you understand. And Lord, that you won't keep us there. And then Lord, I pray for those who are right now in pure confidence saying, Lord, it feels like a mountaintop. Lord, I ask that in those moments we would celebrate with everything that's in us, but remind us to stay humble and obedient in them. And Lord, in everything that we do as we approach your table, that you would help us to evaluate our own hearts and that you would give us the grace that's needed to glorify Jesus in all that we do because it's truly about him and not us. We love you and we thank you for that privilege in Jesus' name, amen.